0: Hey, good morning i am so glad that you are here i want to just echo what clark said if it is your first time here welcome we count it an honor and a privilege we really do that you would take your time out to be here um tony is gone as you can tell so (laughs) you got stuck with me um look i'm excited i get the opportunity to come before you and talk about this this conversation that we're in the middle of we're in the fourth week of a conversation about questioning jesus We've realized as we were looking through the Gospels, which are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as we looked through those four books, we started to notice that there was a trend that Jesus was doing. He was asking a lot of penetrating questions of people. In fact, Jesus asked 307 questions. Now in four books, 307 questions, that's a lot. And what was even crazier is He was only asked 183 questions. So of those 183 questions he was asked, most of the time his responses were questions, and rarely did Jesus give direct answers. In fact, most of the time what we started to notice is as a master teacher, Jesus was asking these questions for one reason. He was asking them not to seek information or a download for the person. He knew that these penetrating questions would create transformation. He would cause the person to reorient or rethink through what they're doing, why they're doing it, through these questions. It was a master way of doing it. So we thought, hey, let's take a look at these questions. Let's figure out what Jesus is asking and see how that applies to our life. So, so far, we're in week four, so I'm gonna take a pause and kind of real quick recap what we've done so far, if you've been around. First week, we talked about this question, who do you say that I am? Specifically, who do you think that Jesus is? That was the question we wrestled with, or Tony did, as we talked. Second week, we talked about, do you want to get well? or we found as we looked into it, it was actually asking the question, are you willing to change? The third question we looked at real quick was why do you worry? And this whole idea of should not, need not. Now, I'm not going into a lot of detail on those things. If you're interested in any of them, you can go on our website, check out our podcast. Um, The website is actually on the back of your program, right on the bottom, underneath Connection Pathway, MedinaEast.GraceOhio.Org. All that stuff there. It's free. It's available for you to check out, and it's really good. And now we're going into this week where we're going to be questioning value. We're going to be looking at this morning a conversation that Peter and Jesus had about this whole idea of value and how our values shape our identity and how Jesus actually has an identity in mind for us that if we take on board, our values will change. So we're going to be questioning value and looking at this. And in order to do this... Um, I'm going to do something that for you introverts in the room are really going to hate me, but it's okay. You're an introvert, so you're not going to talk to me afterwards in the lobby because you're going to avoid me. Um, I'm going to ask you actually to stand up and talk to somebody else around you. Don't worry, this is Tony approved. I've already made sure this is okay. We don't normally do this. This is very unusual, and I'm going to ask you to to do something. I'm going to ask you to answer this fill in the blank thing, two fill in the blanks to somebody else. Okay, it's going to be really simple. All you're going to do: is stand up, talk to each other. We're going to take like. Two minutes to do it, now here are the fill in blanks. I, I, I think everyone in this room can do it, so here's what they are, this is what you're gonna do. You're gonna say, hi, my name is, hopefully you know this fill in the blank right here, and then the second one is, and I'm a blank. You're just gonna introduce yourself to somebody else around you. We're gonna take two minutes, the house lights are gonna come up, we're gonna take two minutes, and I want you to introduce yourself, stand up, talk to somebody around you, take two minutes. Can we do this? I said said one more time, can we do this? All right, cool, let's take two minutes and do that real quick. All right, if you're new, we, we don't usually do this, okay? This is not a thing that we do every week. Like, if you're like, wow, this church is this. This is not what I want to be a part of. This is not what we do. There's a reason why we're doing it. Most of us know the answer to this. My name is. We can really easily, that's something, for most of us, it's given to us. We don't get the choice to do so. It's most of that. Thanks, Seth, for the water. Um, the, what we found, though, is the second one, This I'm a, it says something about what we value. And in fact, I'd go as far to say this, this I'm a phrase shows us what is valuable or important to us in that time. I remember last night I walked up to somebody and he goes, hi, my name is Tommy. I'm like, yeah, cool. And he talked to me and goes, hi, I'm a bachelor. Didn't even say his name first. I was like, he recognized himself as a bachelor. Like it was interesting. Like that was the first thing that came to his mind when he wanted to talk to me. It, there, these value phrases, this, this second part, this, that, that I'm a phrase can be anything from hobbies to interests to a declaration of who we are to uh, you name it. Some of us probably said, I'm a dad. Some of us said, I'm married to the person that I came with. Some of us may said, this person dragged me and I don't know where I am. Like, it could be a lot of different things that we threw the I'm a statements in, but what we notice is these things give some sort of value to us. Now, I don't think a lot of us said this, but these I'm a phrases aren't always positive. For some of us, these I'm a value statements are, I'm recently unemployed. Um, I'm a widow. I'm recently gone through a divorce. These value things are important to us. These things shape us who we are, and then we don't realize they start to influence our identity. We get more focused instead of the, hi, my name is. We get more interested in talking about the common ground of the second part. Um, When I was in college, I traveled on this music team, there were, they'd send eight college students in a van and trailer and say, "Hey, hey, go have fun with no adult supervision." I mean, we were college students, but that's not really adult supervision. Um, but we went out and we were we went out and we put 10,000 miles on a van and trailer in 10 weeks. Um, we hit a hundred churches in 10 weeks, and we'd do go into these churches and we'd play um, music. Um, all sorts. We'd lead worship con- concerts. We'd hang out with youth. We'd do, I mean, you name it. We did a ton of different stuff. I think one church showed up and they treated us as free labor and had us clean the whole church. I mean, we would do whatever and anything, and it was a blast. Um, but one of the best parts about traveling was when we would go, we'd stay in host homes. So we wouldn't ask to be, like, for the churches to give us, like, any money. Instead, what we'd do is say, hey, we'll come and, like, hang out with you guys, do some ministry. Is there any way that you could just host us for the night? Like, let us hang out with some people in the church just for the evening, and then feed us, and then we'll be out of your hair in the morning. And churches were like, yeah, that sounds like fun. So I slept on a lot of cold basement floors that summer, a lot of them. Um, And we called these things host homes is what they were called. And I remember one host home in particular. Um, I I need to answer the question I made all of you do. Hi, my name is Tommy, and I'm a major sports enthusiast, like big-time sports enthusiast. And one host home in particular, I'm sitting down, it's after dinner, and you never know what host homes are going to do. Some of them, you would like, hey, let's play a board game. Others, I'm like, hey, go to the basement and hang out by yourself. But with this sports, this one, this guy, we sat down after dinner on the couch, and the guy's sitting next to me, and sports center's on. Yes! Like, I've been on the road with no control over a motor TV, finally get to catch up on what's going on in sports. Except this guy decided to pepper me with questions about sports the entire time. Like, Jeopardy would have been proud of the questions that he was asking. Like, I mean, he was just pelting me left and right. And I'm like, what in the world is this guy doing? Like, I just want to watch TV, man. Leave me alone. Like, I just want to know what's going on with the Cubs or, yeah, I'm a Cubs fan, or, or the Packers. Like, I just want to know what's going on. And, and all of a sudden, I, it dawned on me, like, this guy, we were talking, and he goes, I asked him, so what do you do? And he goes, well, I'm one of the athletic directors at Michigan State University. Okay, if you don't know what Michigan State University is, this is like Division One, big-time sports, like, major time, like that state up north that even though I said it, I'm also a Buckeye fan. Even though it's that state up north, it is a Michigan state. Like it is huge. And he's like, you really enjoy it. I would love to take you on a tour of our sporting facilities in the morning before you guys go. I'm like, yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's get on this. I want to go. I want to be a part of this. And so the, all he, he took all eight of us of the team members to Michigan state and took us on a complete tour of the whole facilities. We got to go into Tim, um, Tom Izzo's office, now, if you're not a sports fan, Tom Izzo was like one of the best basketball coaches, like one of the great coaches in basketball, won national championships, tons of awards, all this stuff. We walked in and I'm like, like shaking as I'm walking into the room looking around and I'm looking like, it's Tom Izzo's desk. And he's like, you wanna sit in his chair? I'm like, can I? I'm like, and, and I'm a sports enthusiast and the other seven people on my team are like, where are we and who is this dude? They're musicians. They could care less. So we go on and he's like, can I sit down? As I'm sitting down, I'm like shaking as I'm sitting in the chair. I'm like, oh, like this is awesome. Um, and I'm sitting down and he actually pulls out his, um, one of his assistants comes in and pulls out the national championship trophy that Tom, is, his uh, ring. And he's like, hey, you want to put it on? I'm like, yeah. As I'm like taking the ring, like putting it on my finger, like, oh, this is great. Like my hand was like shaking the whole time, hoping I didn't drop this ring that is like something I'll never earn in my life. And we ended up going out. He took us on a tour of, like, the locker room. We We actually got to meet a couple of the players. Like, I was in heaven. I was loving every minute of it. And then he took us into the football side of things, which was just as magnificent. And we walked into this place that I can only describe as, like, a warehouse of warehouses. This place was massive, like, big enough for three full-size football fields to fit inside of this warehouse with field goals. Like, they could do full three games at the same time. And it was tall enough that if a punter punted the ball, there's no way it's hitting that ceiling. Like, this place was massive. Like, there were eight of us on the team and this athletic director walking through this place. And I'm just like, man, I am way out of my league. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And all of a sudden, I remember out of the corner of my eye, I look over, and this guy is walking to me. And in the back of my head, I'm going, this guy, is, this guy that took us, he's not really an athletic director. You know, they finally caught us. They're going to kick us out. This is security. And then all of a sudden, it clicked with me. That's Mark D'Antonio, and if you, again, if you're not a sports enthusiast, Mark D'Antonio is the head football coach for Michigan State University, like, big time, won, like, b- BCS bowl games, he competes with Ohio State, Ohio State wins most of the time, um, competes with, like, he's a great coach, and he's walking up, and he, he doesn't know who we are, he knows the athletic director, so he was the athletic director, I found out, he wasn't faking, he actually was. But he walks up, and he starts to talk, and he talks to the athletic director, and he turns to us and goes, Hey, who are you you guys? General question, who you ask. And one of the, I'll never forget, one of the girls on our team was standing next to me. And I'll leave her a name. She goes, Hi, my name is so-and-so, and and I'm a musician. And I just remember thinking, like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Like, you don't know who you're talking to. Like, what are you doing? And and she then puts out his hand, and he goes, Oh, that's really cool. You guys on the radio? And she goes, Not yet, but I hope to be. I was like, are you kidding me right now? Like, do you know who you're talking to? Like, this is like a h- big coach. Like, who are you? And he's super cool. He's like, oh, that's awesome. Talk to us for a few minutes. And all, then the team was like, all right, we're done with this. Let's go. So the rest of the team left. And I'm like, hey, this ring, this finger, had the national championship ring on. This hand has to shake the hand of Mark D'Antonio. So I, like, walk up, and I, like, shake his hand. I'm like, hi, I'm Tommy. And I shake his hand. My hand is, like, shaking the whole time. Like, I, I like, I probably look like some fanboy, even though I'm an Ohio State fan. Like, shake, go and shake his hand. And I'll never forget what he said. He goes, hi, my name is Mark, and I'm a dad. And I remember just being like, wait, what? You're a dad? Like, we're in your turf, man. Like, we're on your field. Like, why, why a dad? And I was like, all right, whatever. We talked for a minute. And then as we walked out, I was walking next to the athletic director, and I said, why would he say that? Why would he say that he's a dad? And, and he, he turned into the... The athletic director told me, he goes, Mark has found that that is the greatest recruiting tool he's ever had. When he sits down in a living room with a player and their parents, and when he introduces himself as Mark and, hi, I'm a dad, he's won the parents over almost immediately. Because in that moment, he's identified himself as something that people can relate to. But he also said something more that was really cool. It's not just a recruiting tool. Mark has taken that and actually made that kind of who he is. His whole life and who he is, he sees through the lens of being a dad that he tries to schedule some of his time around spending time with his family. He intentionally looks through that lens that what is most important to him is being a dad. What we're going to look at today is seeing that what we identify ourselves are, that that value carries over and becomes the thing that when we talk about the IMA statements are the thing that kind of carries a lot of weight in how we describe ourselves. So what we're going to do is we're going to be diving into Matthew 16. If you have your phone, if you have um, your Bible, whatever you have in front of you, if you want to open that, going to be in Matthew 16. If you don't own a Bible in front of you in the seats, there is a black hardcover Bible, or there should be. If there's not, let us know, we'll get it. We say this every week, but we actually mean it. If you don't own a Bible, please take it with you. Like, Please take that with you. Go read it. Like, If you have questions, come talk to us about it. Or better yet, talk to the person that came with you. Like, They would love to help you understand it. And if you have that, we're going to be on page 687 in those books. And what we're going to do is we're going to do three things this morning. And in, in, in looking at questioning value. First off, I'm gonna read the whole passage through from beginning to end. And then we're gonna dissect the conversation between Peter and Jesus. And then we're gonna test a framework that Jesus gives. So we're gonna do three things. We're gonna dissect the conversation. I'm gonna read the whole passage. We're gonna dissect the conversation between Peter and Jesus. And then we're gonna test a framework that Jesus gives. Make sense? We good? All right, let's read this. So in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside, he took Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Okay, pause. I never want to hear that from Jesus, like ever in my life. Okay, resume. Um, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. So let me take a short story and shorten it even more. Long, sh- Short story short, Jesus has this conversation with Peter where he's going to explain some stuff to him, and then he's going to go deeper into understanding it. Now to understand this conversation between Peter and Jesus, we need to understand this term. So in the passage right before this, Jesus does something for the first time in his ministry. For the first time, he actually answers that I'm a statement. He says, I'm the Messiah. He says this for the first time. Now, why is this a big deal to understand this word Messiah? Well, Jesus is going to take this whole piece, and he's going to explain to them what it means to truly be the Messiah. Okay, well, to understand, that, we need to know the definition of Messiah and be, begin that. The definition of Messiah is this, a leader or savior of a specific group of people. Messiah is a leader or savior of a specific group of people. Specifically, this kind of Messiah is one that comes down and pulls people up to their level. Messiah is a person that comes in and rescues people and brings them into this desired area they want to go. Now, why is this so important? Well, we need to understand that there's actually two competing ideas going on. There's Peter and the disciples and the Jews' idea of what Messiah is going to be, and then there's Jesus' understanding of what Messiah actually is. So, to un- so Peter and the Jews, which is a terrible band name, by the way, um, Peter and the Jews are over here. They're like going through and starting to understand like this idea of Messiah. In their mind, their definition of Messiah is a person that's going to come in and remove all of the bad things that are going on. What were those bad things? Well, the bad things were the Roman Empire at this time is, over- is kind of like taken over the Jewish people. They're taxing them. They're forcing them to like change their religion. They have to like Hail Caesar in certain ways. They're actually killing some of them that are insubordinate. Okay, you could have stopped me if they took their money, and I would have already been on board with like Peter and the Jews. Like I would not have wanted this kind of rule over me. But what was, but what was interesting is like their definition of Messiah, they were expecting this leader to come in and be a man's man and remove them from this tyranny. They were expecting a Hulk Hogan of a Hulk Hogan-looking guy. Or if you don't know who Hulk Hogan is, a a Wolverine of a Wolverine. Like they were expecting like the man's man, 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 and keep going. Like they were looking for the man's man. The guy that was going to come in, remove the Roman rule, be the guy. He was going to rule for a long time. He was going to be the king and he was going to establish a Jewish kingdom. This is what Peter, the disciples, and the Jews were expecting the Messiah to do. Now, why is this a big deal? Because Jesus is going to begin to explain to his disciples what Messiah actually is. So he's just said, I'm the, I'm the Messiah, and they have this box, boxed idea of remove us from the Roman Empire. Our physical reality is going to change. And Jesus just goes, hang on a second, guys. There's something else going on here. There's a bigger thing going on. And he's going to go as far to say that this Messiah, Jesus, says this Messiah, the actual one, is going to be killed. Now, this is a buzzword. Because when you hear this word and you think about it, killed is a word that when you hear it, you stop in your tracks. Like, that's going to stop you. And in fact, when they hear the word Messiah, the word killed and Messiah does not fit into the small little box that Peter and the rest of the Jews have. They don't think that the Messiah that's going to come rescue them is going to be someone that is going to die. This is going to be a, like, you hope that any leader you follow, when they go into war and they win and they come back, they're still going to be alive and they're going to rule. That's what they're hoping for. So when Peter hears this word killed, he actually does something else. He rebukes Jesus. He takes Jesus' aside and goes, Jesus, uh-uh, uh-uh, you're an idiot. You're, you're not going to die. I'm not going to let that happen. Peter was so concerned about the physical life of Jesus and his definition of what a Messiah is that he's telling Jesus, you're wrong. Because he was focused on this word, Killed. This was a buzzword. This set off something in Peter's mind that when he heard it, he stopped in his tracks and missed everything that came after that. Um, When I was in high school, I got to go on these mission trips to Ecuador. Um, Awesome experience. My dad and I got to go on several of them. Actually, my whole family went on one of them. It was a great experience for my family. Some of my best memories are from this trip. And um, the first time, we went to the same school both, both years. And the first one we went to, we, we got there, and as we're getting there, we're on the plane. Like, we got to the airport. As we're getting on the plane, if you're sitting on a plane, myself and somebody else, and you know how, like, before you get on a plane, they, like, take the luggage, and it goes on, like, this conveyor belt up into, like, the bottom side of the plane. So, like, you, like, set it on there. It goes up in. But my friend and I are sitting there, and we're looking out the window, and she sees her bag that's out there. And her bag was this duffel bag where all her clothes are in it. And this guy takes the bag and tosses it onto the thing. And she was like hey, don't toss my bag with the bum on it. Now she said B-U-M, because that was what was on her bag. She said, don't toss the bag with the bum on it right as the flight attendant walked by. And the flight attendant didn't hear B-U-M, no, 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 the flight attendant heard B-O-M-B. Don't toss the bag with the bomb on it. Now this is post 9-11, okay, so like this is a serious deal. It was before, but it was even more so afterwards. And that buzzword went off in that flight attendant's head. He stopped, turned, and looked there, and goes, "Oh, you're gonna regret this." Walked to the back of the plane, picked up the phone, and called the tower, and said, "Hey, we have a bomb threat on flight." Da 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 da. My friend and I are sitting there looking at each other because we don't hear the word bomb; we hear the word "bum." Like that's what we heard. And for the first time in my life, I turned at the same time she and I. It clicked with us. Oh my word! He heard "bomb." He heard "bomb." And we turned. She said "bomb." She said "bomb." It's the only time in my life that I really hope someone actually heard me say the word bum, like B-U-M. And, and, it's, and this, uh, thankfully, like the flight attendant's like, what? It's like he heard the buzzword, and he then all of a sudden it stopped, and like, what do you mean? I said, B-U-M. And he looks out the window, and thank the Lord that that piece of luggage hadn't made it under the plane yet, because there it was, that bag with B-U-M on it. That flight attendant all of a sudden goes, oh, you didn't say "bomb," you said bum. And he stopped. Call the place back and go, I misheard. This is not a bomb threat. They said B-U-M, not B-O-M-B. Everything was fine. Long story short, nothing happened. Um, Everything everything was good. So we ended up flying there. But but what happened was this flight attendant heard a buzzword, heard bomb, and stopped. He didn't see the bigger picture and what was actually going on. This is what Peter has done. Peter has heard the word killed and the buzzword and stops in his tracks and says, no, 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 I need to do something about this. And what he misses is something that Jesus is doing because Jesus explains that this, this, this Messiah is going to be raised to life. This understanding of Messiah that Jesus has that is so much bigger than this little box that Peter and the Jews, remember that really bad band, has in mind is that this Messiah is going to die but is going to be raised back to life. See, the rest of this story is that the Messiah will be raised. We know, if you know the rest of the story, we know that Jesus is going to die and that he is going to be raised to life. Peter and the rest of this crew haven't had this happen yet. So what does Jesus do? Jesus quickly stops, and he, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Or in our terms, I pity you, fool. Like, he looks right at Peter in the eyes and says, you're an idiot. Like, you don't get it, man. You're so concerned with your little box that you're missing the big picture. Where do I get that? The end of this. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus could have very easily walked up and mic dropped get behind me, Satan. He could have just put him on blast and walked out. He could have posted it on Twitter and never said anything about it again. But instead, what Jesus says is, no, 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 no. let me explain why you don't get it. Let me explain to you why this little box of Messiah that you think you understand is not as good as what's going over here. And he goes a step further because he says that you're you're merely concerned with human concerns. And Peter, what is Peter concerned with? He's concerned with Jesus' physical life. He cares for his friend, the guy he spent years with. He's concerned that this guy is going to die. And this is a good thing. Jesus doesn't say, "Hey, don't worry about those things." You know the things that keep you up at night, the things that buys all your time, the thing that you're worried about. Like he's saying, "That's not a bad thing." He's saying it's not bad. He says if you only concern yourself with that stuff though, man, you're going to miss the bigger picture. Jesus life, the human concern, that's a good thing. The man, Jesus got something greater over here. He's got something bigger. Jesus' life, good thing. God's thing, whole lot greater. So what he starts to do is like this phrase becomes the whole crux of the whole passage. This is like the most important thing of the passage because this part of the conversation, Jesus says, okay, let's test out to figure out what your human concerns are. Let's test out to see if you are only concerned with the things of God or if you're only concerned with your human concerns. He's going to start to test this out by giving some teaching points, some questions, some these things, trying to look for transformation or reorientation of people to understand what this actual meaning of Messiah is going to be. So how does Jesus do this? Well, Jesus turns to his disciples. He turns to his group of 12, and, and he does something interesting. He, he actually asks them, do you still want to be my disciple? He says, whoever wants to be my disciple, this whole idea of want, he's already picked out these 12. These 12 guys, including Peter, have already said yes, I want to be your disciple. And he goes, okay, he's giving them an out. Do you still wanna be my disciple? And he says, okay, what does it mean to be my disciple or Christ follower? That's another word for this. What does it mean to be that? He goes, well, it means that if you wanna be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. And, and okay, we need to like kind of put ourselves in their sandals for a second. Because Peter and these guys, like, we know the end of the story that Jesus is going to die on the cross. We know that that's going to happen. That hasn't happened yet at this point in the story. So Jesus has just given them another buzzword that would stop them in their tracks. He first said killed, and then he goes as far as to say he's going to die on a cross. Now, what, is, what does he mean by this? Well, to die on a cross, we, you know, hang on a tree. But part of this whole thing is he's saying, actually, before you die on the cross, you got to take it up. Now, what does that mean? Um, When you were sentenced to death and death on a cross, there was, you know, we've seen a cross, you've got your pole that goes up and down and then your one that goes sideways. The one that goes sideways, they would actually connect these two pieces at the place where you would die. Um, And this one sideways, what they make the person do is carry that thing on their back after any other punishment and walk through the main street of town for everyone to see that this person is condemned to death and allow them to carry that by themselves all the way to the place where they're gonna die that's humiliating, that's demoralizing. That is like the thing that you just don't wanna do. That's a really hard thing to do. And what Jesus is saying is if you wanna follow me, guess what, at times, it's gonna be humiliating. You wanna follow me and do that, it's gonna be like defining. When people thought of people that died on the cross, these are probably people that they may have lived their whole life with, but when they think of that person, from then on after, they're going to picture them carrying the cross through the main street. They're not going to think of them as a little kid. They're not going to think of them as a teenager. This is going to define them and who they are. Being a, he says, you want to be a disciple? You're going to be defined by doing hard things. I mean, what he's asking is saying, like, you want to be my disciple? You're going to have to do really hard stuff. You're gonna to have to do stuff that, man, at times, I don't really want to do this, or it's so much easier to do this and makes more practical sense for me to do this as opposed to that. And he going, you want to be my disciple? Guess what? You're gonna to have to do the hard stuff. And Jesus, remember, he's still trying to let them know what it means to be Messiah, but he's also testing out with them what are the human concerns and what are the things that concern God. He's saying the things that concern God, man, they're hard. They're really hard. Now, if I'm trying to get you to, like, if I'm a motivational speaker and telling you you want to be a disciple, you're going to have to do hard things, I ain't doing a good job right now. Like, this is not easy at all. And Jesus wants to take this phrase and say, okay, let's test it out a step further. And Jesus, being the literary genius that he is, uses a great term that I like to call an oxymoron. Jesus actually starts to use this whole thing of oxymoron. And, And most of us, I think, know what they are. It's this idea of two opposite adjectives rubbing up against each other where they don't really make sense, but sometimes they declare a greater truth. For example, I, it's like, I can resist anything except temptation. Or um, I'm a deeply superficial person. I think this is the Kardashians motto, actually. Um, or another one that I've heard recently is, um, I'm a joyful Browns fan. <laughs> I just, I've never met a joyful and a Browns fan where those two things are the same thing. Um, I'm kidding, kind of. Um, There is something in these oxymoron statements, though, where they're opposites that inherently they don't make sense. But they're kind of playing at a deeper truth that's actually going on. And Jesus uses this by saying, for whoever, if you want to do hard things, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Okay, Jesus, what are you saying here? Well, he's saying that if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. What is he actually talking about? Remember earlier when he made the whole comment about you're concerned with the things of God and not things like human concerns, God's concerns. He's saying if you only chase after human concerns, period, he goes, you're not going to find what you're looking for. You're going to miss something greater that's going on. If you're looking for your keys and you find them, you're like, sweet, I find them. I didn't lose them again. They've been found. He's saying, no, 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 it's not the stuff. It's it's the rewards and the bigger picture and what's going to be the end result. Jesus is now turning this into kind of like, what's the bottom line thing that you're going to gain out of this? Because he's saying here, if you lose your life, he's not saying physically lose it. He's actually saying, like, if you lose those human concerns and you stop chasing only those and you start chasing the things that concern God, oh, man, you ain't seen nothing yet. Man, you're going to find something greater that you didn't even know existed. Man, that, that, that God concerns, the joy and the rewards. He says, man, you do hard things, but, man, at the end of the day, ooh, buddy, That's what he's getting at. I had a a college professor who was, we was talking about this whole thing, and he was challenging us to try to bring this over to our everyday life. I remember talking to him after class going, like, I don't know how I can do this. Like, how do I bring the things that concern God to me? Like, how do I do that? And he goes, well, what do you like to do? And remember I said I was a sports enthusiast? Um, I actually love to play sports. Those that know me well, that may surprise you, because I don't do any physical activity right now, even though I need to. Um... But I actually played soccer in college, and I loved it. I was one of my favorites to play. Um, I was a grass fairy and I'm proud of it. Um, we had a, a ton of fun playing, playing soccer. And my first two years, I was looking for the team that always won the trophy. Well, we were poor college students, so they figured instead of trophies, we wanted clothes, so they gave us t-shirts if you won the league. So like, they, I was always looking for the t-shirt. I wanted to win the t-shirt. I wanted to have all of them, as many as I could get. So I was every single season, there were three soccer seasons a year, I would look for the team that was gonna win it and I would try out for that team. And I would go and make it and I won a couple T-shirts. I increased the number of clothes that I could wear on a weekly basis without doing laundry. Like I won a couple T-shirts as a college student. And my professor really pushed in on me and said, what what are you gonna gain at the end of the day? And I was like, a couple T-shirts. He's like, okay, well how can you take that soccer thing and turn it to maybe something that concerns God? And I kind of stopped and think about it, and I realized that I, there was a certain team that I played with that, um, that I hadn't played with yet, actually, that it was a group of guys that I had gotten along with really well, that I really enjoyed playing with, and I was like, you know what? They're terrible, but I love those guys. I'm gonna go play with them. And what I found was we were as bad as I thought. Like, I think we won one game my junior year, if I'm honest. Like, We were not good at all, but I never had more fun than I had. Because my goal changed from just trying to win to all of a sudden like we'd go out after the games and we would go and we'd go to eat and we would laugh. We'd talk about life. We had this whole biblical community thing that we were trying to do. We were building each other up. We were laughing, we were asking about each other's like significant other, trying to like build each other. And I was like, man, I had more fun doing that. My senior year, we actually started winning games, which was crazy for this group because they hadn't won a game other than that one. They had won one game in three years previous. Like we were bad, like that bad. And my senior year, we actually made it somehow to the semifinals, which I don't know how we did, and we lost, and I won't tell you whose fault it was, but it was my fault. Um, we lost in a shootout. I remember we lost it, and like, I, I was the one who missed the last goal that would have tied it to made us go into extra rounds. And I remember turning around, and like, we had lost. And those teams my freshman and sophomore year, that their goal was winning the t-shirt and everything like that, if we would have lost the t-shirt, those guys would have cut me from the team. I wouldn't have been on the team the next year. They'd have pushed me aside. But I'll never forget, I turned around, and I walked towards these guys, and they're like, dude, get over here. And it was like a manly group hug, which was kind of awkward, to be honest. But it was one of those things where it kind of stuck with me, because we went on afterwards, and that's one of those nights that I remember clear as day, being like, we had more fun laughing about it. And then the next day, I got emails from all the guys to each other. They were encouraging me to not feel bad. And we were talking to each other, having fun. And like our whole goal became like, man, let's, let's build each other up. Let's push each other towards Christ. And I was like, dude, let me tell you what, we lost, but I won something so much better. I found some, I still talk with some of those guys. Those are guys where my focus switched from instead of just trying to win and get the thing for myself and get the t-shirt where, let's be honest, if I told you I won like five t-shirts in college, you'd be like, who cares? Who cares if you want a f- stupid t-shirt? But when I start telling you about the relationships that I have with these guys and how much fun it is to talk to some of these guys, Man, like, (laughs) that is the stuff that I want for you. That's the stuff Jesus is talking about. He's saying that there's something greater if you're willing to just change your perspective and reorient yourself on the things that concern me. And he does this by actually giving us, okay, we're finally, remember this whole series is called Questioning Jesus? We're finally at the question. Well, actually, he gives two of them, so it's questions in Jesus. There's two questions he's going to give. So the first one is this, he goes, what will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? This whole thing he's talking about, what do you gain if you only chase after the human concerns? If you're only, because he's looking at Peter, remember, Peter's talking about Messiah. He's got this box of Messiah that they understand it. He says, if I come in as the Messiah and remove your physical things that are bothering you and that's it, what do you gain at the very end of your life? What are you going to get at the end? He goes, what, what is it that you're going to gain? If you take that thing that keeps you up at night, that thing that takes all of your time and energy and you take it to the end of the life, what do you gain from it? That's what he's asking. And it's a bottom line framework. And then he takes it a step further and he says, let's not just say you get the one thing that you're looking for, but you get the whole world. So you get a hundred times, a hundred times, a hundred times the thing that you're looking for. He goes, yet you lose your soul. What do you get? And he even, because the next question he asks is, what could anyone give in exchange for their soul? He's saying, what is your soul worth? Is your soul worth that human concern one thing? Is that the one thing you're chasing after? And remember, Jesus has explained to them what it means to be the Messiah. He's saying, there is so much greater coming if you only will get it. You want to be my disciple? Oh man, it's worth it. You want to be my disciple? Oh man, something greater is coming. You want to be my disciple? In verse 27, he talks about the rewards. And he's not talking about like in terms of like physical stuff. He's actually saying the find it part. He's saying something better is coming if you choose to be my disciple. And he's saying it is a choice. Look, I know that not everyone in this room identifies themselves as a Christ follower or a disciple. And I I, thank you so much for being here. Like it's we keep saying it, but it's true. We kind of honor privilege that you would investigate. But Jesus wants you to be a disciple. He wants you to follow him because he wants you to realize that you're worth it. And how do I know that? Well, Jesus is saying that your soul, who you are, is worth it. Because right before Jesus died on the cross, he was in this garden. He was praying to the Father, talking to him. And he actually told the Father, I don't want to do this. I don't want to die. He he, he so much didn't want to do it that he was sweating sweating drops of blood. Like he was crying blood. That's how much pain and agony he was in knowing what he was gonna to have to do and that he was going to have to die. But you know what Jesus said? I'm gonna do it, because they're worth it. He could have very easily said, nope, I don't wanna do it. They're not worth it. They don't know who I am, they don't care, they don't love me, I'm getting what I want. I'm gonna concern myself with my physical life, my human concern. But Jesus says, uh-uh, uh-uh. I want them to know you. I want them to know these greater things and he's saying you're worth it. Now, If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, Jesus said something really big there. You are worth it. You are worth it to Jesus. Like he was willing to die on the cross, raise again so that you could know him and have a relationship with the Lord, so that you could be a part of biblical community, so you could reap these greater rewards and the man, you don't know nothing yet, you can have those. And, and, and what he's really saying, though, in all of this, this whole passage, it boils down to one question. I think the real question that Jesus is asking is this. Do you really want to be my disciple? Do you really want to be my disciple? Do you really want to do the hard things? Are you willing to? Are you willing to chase after the stuff that at times you're like, man, I don't know if this is okay. Now, look, this is not a guilt trip. This is not a guilt trip trying to say, like, you need to just go check off the boxes and do what Jesus wants and you're going to get it. That's not what I'm saying. Remember, Jesus asked these quest- questions not for information or a guilt trip. He asked them to reorient ourselves back onto the things that matter most to him. So he's saying, you know what matters most to Jesus? He wants you to be his disciple. He wants you to follow after you. I want to speak to two groups real quick. The first group is the band comes up. The first group... That I want to talk to is those that don't call, identify themselves as disciples. It's like, man, do you, do you want to? It's worth it. It's hard, but it's worth it. Do, do you really want to be his disciple? You're investigating, you're figuring it out. Are, are you interested in doing this? And, and the other group, those that if you would identify yourself and see your values. Remember the I'm a statement? You would say, I'm a disciple or a Jesus follower. Are you willing to do the hard things? Do you still really want to be Jesus' disciple? Look, grace, grace is given. Jesus has given us this thing. We don't have to earn it, but do you want it? You don't have to earn the fact that you'd be a disciple, you just go after it, but do you want it? Are you willing to do what's hard, the, the things that that person's telling you like, man, I don't think that that's the right thing to do. I don't think that you fill in the blank is what God really wants, it's not God's best. Are you only considering, if you're a disciple, are you only worried about this little box? Are you concerning yourself with the things that concern God, the biblical community? Maybe it's for you, I don't know what your application is. Maybe it's checking out a life group. Maybe it's actually being discipled or getting discipled. I don't know what your application is. There's probably a hundred things. Maybe it's stop doing something. Maybe it's start doing something. I don't know. But my question is this, and I wanna leave with this. Do you really want to be Jesus' disciple? Do you really want to? Do you want it? Let's pray. God, you are a great God um, that loves us enough that you would send your son and you tell us every day that we are worth it to you. That we are worth it and that you love us enough that you would want what's best for us. Um, God, I pray that you just become our eyes and our vision, that we see you, that we seek after the things you do, and that you help reorient us back to what is most important to you. God, we love you, we praise you, and I thank you for your son, and help us to figure out what it means to be your disciple on a daily basis. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.